0: Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for the man, the myth, the legend, our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Whoa, whoa. Woo, Max is the best. They call me Ben, joined, as always, with my ride-or-die, Noel. Noel, this one has been a long time in the making, my friend.
1: Yeah, it has. and I'm sorry for my lackluster. Max is the best, because, you know, usually, obviously, I do my little... Or like, you know, crowd noise and worshipful of Max because that is what he is due. But um, today we're kind of talking about someone that sort of stepped out uh, to to meet what they thought were their public, um, the people, uh, to, to, to greet them and, and present them with a brave new world, a, a new way of doing things, and were met with sad trombones. They uh, then elicited the, the about the most sad trombone reaction one could possibly um, react with, which is committing ritual suicide. Uh, Whoa, pretty heavy, spoiler. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, I mean, let's just uh, a little bit of a, a trigger warning because yeah, this, this episode is. Yeah, this episode is is, is it's got some uh, bombast. It's got some iconoclastic kind of behavior. It's got literature. It's got culture of the Japanese variety. And it really also is an interesting story of kind of East meets West in terms of a Japanese, you know, uh, writer who really did kind of make a name for themselves in the United States. We are, of course, talking about the bizarre final years of Yukio Mishima.
0: Yeah, I see this as, um, I see this as a telling illustration, a telling example of how different uh, your favorite artist's lives may be than what you initially perceive. You might have a favorite musician who all of a sudden, apparently out of the blue, comes comes with some political stance that really surprises you. Or a sculptor, perhaps, or, as in this case, an author. So we are not diving into this alone. This is a two-part episode. This is our whole week. It's Mishima Week here at Ridiculous Historians and... Folks, we are joined for the first time on air with one half of our brand new research associate team. Let's hear it for the one and only Mr. Zach Williams.
2: No release. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's Dr. Zach Williams, as a matter of fact. And Whoa. I'm, at, I'm kidding. Doc- I'm kidding. Don't. Please don't wow. do that. I'm joking. You, you did it. Parody. Parody. <laughs>
3: One night over Sleepy Town, a doctor appeared, but this was no normal doctor. Who's there? It's Zack. Zach who? The doctor named Zack. and he's here to fill your scripts, just for knowledge. Pet is cat. His pet.
1: Teach you history, books and stuff. Um, let's go with other things. Yeah, that'll work. You really think you're going to get out of this now? You you, you you big league <laughs> us in this way. Uh, well, we are going to follow suit, Doc, Doctor Zach. I like Doctor Zach because it sounds like both kind of um, uh, formal and informal. Because Zach, I've always just thought is a real fun loving kind of name because I think of Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. I'm sure you don't love that comparison, but it is That's what fine. it is. We're we're glad we're glad to have you, Zach. And this is a um, this is a topic that is near and dear to your heart and to a mutual friend of ours, a friend of the show, Peyton Fisher who turned me on to the film uh, Mishima uh, many, many, many years ago. Um, how did you kind of come to appreciate and, and even know about this um, very kind of divisive figure?
2: Well, I've always been attracted to iconoclasm, generally speaking. And... uh at the time that I first encountered Mishima's fiction, I was in a creative writing program in undergrad. Uh, I was trying to be a poet and a fiction writer and just seeking out things of a sort of like late modernist, postmodernist bent, which was sort of like my wheelhouse at the time. And I'd always had a sort of like affinity for for, for Japanese aesthetics and culture. And I read his book, The Sound of Waves, which I thought was like a very standard kind of coming of age story that kind of celebrated this very traditional idea of masculinity and sort of like being a man working hard to get what it is that you wanted despite your poverty or something like that. It's a very bootstraps Romeo and Juliet style story. But one of the things that really struck me was one of the characters in that book whose name escapes me now because it's been so long since I read it, but she's in love with this, uh, this lead character Shinji and has gone to university, comes back, find that he's in love with, um, the daughter of a of like a shipping baron um, named Hatsue, and um, basically contrives to break up their relationship by spreading rumors about her um, ill repute, we'll say, mm. um, her sort of promiscuity. And one of the things that's so interesting about that book is that it really comes alive in the sections where you're kind of stewing alone with this character uh, kind of thinking about her motivations and her kind of guilt and shame over having come between these two people, and there's this really interesting sort of psychological kind of um, depth to those moments that isn't quite present in the the plot of the rest of the book. It's like, well, that's a very interesting kind of approach to this character. This idea of like you could have contempt for somebody while also having some sort of empathy. Like, empathy, yeah. it's empathy, but also you know you're relating to them in a really in a real way because we we can all be spiteful kind of backbiting, uh, conniving people when we're not getting the things that we want. We feel like we've been denied of something. So I thought, wow, that's actually a really lovely sort of section of the book. And then I saw the film Mishima Life in Four Chapters because I'd read the book cold and found all of this stuff about this fellow, all of these contradictions a true postmodern figure if you could ever think of one because uh, so much of his life is shrouded in like this sort of public persona, this performance, but also the ambiguities of his private life, the ambiguities of his political affiliations and ideology, uh, whether or not those things were were actually like serious kind of pursuits or, or just another part of the window dressing. And I always find that sort of thing very, very fascinating. Like somebody who turns their life into a sort of theater or an object of art And in many cases, much to their own detriment, which is definitely kind of like the cautionary tale of this story, I think.
0: Yeah, agreed. And if we and also when we look at the life of someone who is uh, universally considered to be one of the most important writers in Japan during this time period, uh, we see that he lives through uh, some crazy events in history. I think we're right to have that uh, disclaimer trigger warning here, but there's a lot that goes into that final act. Uh, like many, many authors uh, then and now, this guy takes a pen name. The Mishima Yukio we know now was not born Mishima Yukio, correct?
2: Yeah, he was born a uh, Hiroka Kimitake. And one of the funny things about any sort of encounter with Japanese literature you end up with is, um, especially early translations in the 20th century, there's always this weird Orientalism to it. Um, and it, one of the, uh, the front notes, the author bio in a... a, a fairly recent vintage edition of the sea of fertility books uh lists him as like a like the sort of like a a son of a samurai family <laughs> everyone's very quick to kind of play up these associations between like the old samurai and the sort this sort of modernist writer and things like that of course a lot of that comes from the turn in his politics near the end of his life but um it it's a very interesting kind of thing to see him having sort of come out from under this um this sort of like old money um they were vassals of the Maeda clan, for instance uh, in the northwestern regions of Japan and naturally his family very impressive, comes from this incredibly impressive background and you have this young man who ostensibly in his younger years uh, as a child, um, very quiet, subdued, isolated, not particularly impressive by any means, um, sort of frail in constitution and asthmatic um, definitely not the picture of masculinity that you would expect from like you know the, the vassals of old samurai, you know, sort of um, families and things of that nature. So uh, it's a very interesting kind of thing to sort of see him make a new version of himself from out of his failures to embody these these very kind of auspicious beginnings. And I think too, it's also a very kind of apt metaphor for the transitional period that Japan would find itself in later on in uh, the 40s and 50s and in the 60s, where things become very, very fraught indeed. And uh, it's always something that I find myself drawn to is uh, this sort of uh, failure. Uh, Failure is a theme not only in literary production, but also in like the production of the stuff of life and sort of like making one's own self and identity. Also,
1: Also, Japan, I mean, I've always been fascinated by their sort of mix of, you know, such, you know, steeped tradition and, like, this kind of, like, almost, you know, um, surf and vassal kind of, you know, militarized, highly, almost, like, medieval kind of structure, and then, you know, after the bomb is dropped and all of that, then they have to kind of reimagine themselves culturally in this almost, like, kind of futurist kind of mode, uh, and so it really is this very fascinating mix that I think creates some really incredible culture, whether it's, you know, literature or or anime or or whatever it might be, it is a culture that literally has had to reinvent itself. But then of course there are always echoes of, of the past as well. So I think, you know, Mishima kind of like embodies that to a degree as well in terms of kind of being this modern figure, but also being this kind of like person that came from those those ancient traditions.
2: No, absolutely. And it's worth noting too that before all of this um this business with you know the suicide the the sort of stage coup d'etat uh, which we'll get to later mm-hmm. um a very cosmopolitan um polymath like he was he was a lyricist and singer, an actor, a poet, a novelist, short story writer um a theater director and writer uh he had his own theater groups, he was all over the place. I can't imagine um a more prolific figure from that time, and you know naturally. Nowadays, people have a hard time finding even time to read, much less write. You know, I've succumbed to the pressures of work and I barely myself write anymore. This man produced upwards of 30 plus novels over the mm-hmm. course of his career, poems, plays,
0: critical essays as well.
2: Yes. Very importantly, critical essays. Yes. One of the most like obvious kind of um, I guess, doorways into his ideology and his thinking comes from his long-form essay, Sun and Steel, which the, re- the 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 listeners can't see it, but if you look at the cover of this book, and this is a, a Japanese modern writer's edition, uh, it's an English translation from a Japanese print by Kodansha. Um, He is shown uh, in traditional uh, samurai underclothes, clutching a katana which he is pulling from the scabbard, absolutely yoked, which is like another thing we'll talk about later. <laughs>
0: right I, now, this this uh, I love that you are showing us the cover here, and folks. Uh, Do check it out on your browser of choice so you get a sense of this. This um, I've always thought that humans are the stories they tell themselves, for good or for ill, right? You're building your own mythology. And this cover photograph stands in stark contrast to Mishima's early childhood.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
0: So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So we said he's born January 14th, 1925. Uh, Zach, in some of your research, you introduce us to uh, his grandmother and he starts out kind of sheltered under a, a little bit of an authoritarian regime. I was I was startled to learn that the grandmother takes him in because she says he can't live with his parents. Uh, it, the situation is too dangerous, based apparently on the fact that the home has a second floor.
2: Yes, it's all very... Um strange stuff and that sheltering that sort of like comes down a lot to like a sort of physical constitution. Like um, it's just, it's, it's very, very interesting when you kind of dig into this sort of like cloistered environment that he comes out in. Um, He is socialized almost only uh, with, with, with girls. He is kept in her sort of drawing room uh, surrounded by the sort of uh, objects sense, the aesthetics of femininity and things like that. It's very, very interesting sort of how much this kind of, the room itself is a kind of metaphor for psychology, kind of like looking inward, constructing a sense of self. And I'm by no means like a psychologist or even like a Mishima expert. Like, I don't want to sort of prop myself up as such. But, you know, it's, it's pretty common knowledge that our experiences and youth definitely sort of like bear to who we become as adults. And it seems to me that this is sort of the beginning of all of that. And I think also like those ties to the sort of old Japan, which his grandmother represented and held on to. A deeply classist woman, for instance, would not take him to the theater because they'd be rubbing like elbows with the rabble and things like that. So without pastimes, without a sort of means of socialization that most people would find conventional, he instead turns to these interior flights of fancy, sort of the poetry, the writing. Um, And if I may read from the opening of uh, Sun and Steel for just a moment, just to get his own sort of um, yeah, please do. Two cents on it. Max, let's get some uh, music. So this is on page eight of Sun and Steel. When I examined closely my early childhood, I realized that my memory of words reaches back farther than the memory of the flesh. In the average person, I imagine the body precedes language. In my case, words came first of all. Then, belatedly, with every appearance of extreme reluctance and already clothed in concepts, came the flesh, it was already, as goes without saying, sadly wasted by words. First comes the pillar of plain wood, then the white ants that feed on it. But for me, the white ants were there from the start, and the pillar of plain wood emerged tardily, already half-eaten away. And it's sort of, obviously, a lovely sort of metaphorical passage there, but also indicative of like an intense neurosis and anxiety surrounding this Tension between being a man, specifically a man of action and a man of letters, which is a tension that comes up over and over and over again.
1: So, I mean, the grandmother was concerned about him living with his parents because she thought he was too soft, basically, and they were going to, like, break him right? And so she wanted to kind of handle him with a little bit more, not kids' gloves exactly, but, you know, put him down a path that maybe more suited his constitution, which was a little more feminine and a little bit less, you know, of that kind of warrior class mentality kind of, right? And then, you know, when she passes away, he is returned to his parents and all of the progress that she has made, they essentially uh, attempt to undo before his very eyes, right?
2: Absolutely. Uh, his father is... um Obviously a very intense figure in his life, as with many people, um, but was not particularly enamored with his son's personality, proclivities, talents. Uh and I use the word talents because these talents emerge like very early. Um, especially with regards to poetry. He's right. At twelve when
1: he uh, when he's when he's transferred back to live with his, yeah. his birth parents. Grandmothers yes,
2: hospitalized, it, yeah. And he's, you know, he's already kind of playing in that sandbox that that so many people who, who don't have that kind of physical acumen find themselves, you know, like the aesthetics, the arts, uh, literature, you know, like. Um, oh, yeah. And I've those been, things. I've been there. But, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and eventually we all go through the phase where we start lifting a lot of weights, you know, and uh, and yeah. we love it. <laughs> yeah, it gets <laughs> We all want to become people of action to some degree.
1: Even later, when he, you know, finds some success, his father... Still is like nah, man. <laughs> this isn't this isn't a real thing. I, I don't care what quote unquote level of success and admiration you have achieved. What you're doing is you know, worthless essentially, you know, I mean, this is like a classic overbearing mean spirited kind of disciplinary and parent attitude. When a kid goes away that, that, that branches off from the the path that the parent expects that even when they see that you succeeded, they still can't give you that uh, praise and um, kind of, you know, pat on the back that, that you probably
2: need. Incredibly passive aggressive as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And, when, when Mishima is like 15 or 16, he writes him a letter. <laughs> he doesn't just sort of come out right at dinner. You know, he says, I hear that some high and mighty writers speak of you as a genius or precocious or some kind of deviant or just unpleasant. I think it is high time you took stock of yourself. And this is like in a letter. I wrote you a, I wrote you a note mm-hmm. uh, and I just want you to take that into consideration, which has to be one of those things just like, come on, man, we could have had a conversation about this over tea or something. <laughs> Whenever I need to pick up from either Ben or Nolan something, I write it as a letter and mail it to them.
0: It's It's true. It's It's usually
3: really passive aggressive. It's nice (laughs) to
0: to get mail that isn't junk mail or a bill though. So keep it up, Max. One thing I think will be helpful uh, for all our ridiculous historians looking for maybe a, a more modern analog. Sadly, a lot of people have Tension with their parents, but a more modern analog of this sort of persona in Japan would be the uh, so-called carnivores. Right, this is a term; uh, it's a social term for uh, like the meat eaters, the guys who have steak. Right, the salary men who um, who keep their uh, keep their house tightly regimented, keep their spouse in quote unquote their place, and they have uh, these concrete expectations that are pretty pretty carved out in stone before the kid's born. Like, what your role is supposed to be, what you're supposed to do, and when. And so, to uh, Mishima's father, this is an at, like almost absolute waste of 12 years. There's other stuff he should have learned, and yes, he is writing him these Honest, like these emotionally abusive letters, let's be honest. But he also is uh doubling down, right? Zach, he is doing crazy stuff to sort of uh man up the boy, you know, like uh what what there's the scene where he's holding him close to speeding trains, right? That's that's <laughs> a real thing. And that's something that, you know, you can say you're a tough love parent or authority figure all the live long day, but when you Get that close to throwing your kid in a train. I think that's the time for the father to take stock of himself. That seems a little deviant to me.
2: Absolutely. And so much of that relationship, you know, has to do with these very classical ideas of masculinity that, you know, you were talking about the carnivores, the stiff upper lip, right? The sort of uh, social, like uh, the emotional kind of uh, negation and things like that. It's a very kind of... Um, I think it's a common archetype across cultures, you know, the sort of authoritarian, stiff upper lip father. But it's also worth noting that these t- sorts of personalities also kind of they they mask uh, an insecurity in and of itself. And you know, um, suicide in Japan, the rates, generally speaking, like salary men, very very high um, as far as like people who commit suicide because that lifestyle. However, it it brings uh, productivity. However, it, it sort of reproduces certain. Uh, home styles and certain economic incentives and things like that. It's still personally very corrosive, difficult to maintain.
1: Well, I mean, it's unrealistic. Yeah, absolutely. it's such a, it's such an ideal. I just started watching this show, um, uh, industry, which is about, like, you know, kind of young people coming up in the stock, you know, market in London. And um, no spoilers, but there's something that, you know, really horrible that happens to a character uh, because they just can't keep up the dance. Like, they're, they're so worried about letting down, you know, their mentor or, or letting down their parents or whatever it might be that they're putting themselves in psychological harm's way, you know, like every single day. And there's some people that can deal with it better than others and maybe some people that kind of deal with it through drug abuse or alcoholism or, or whatever it might be, or just becoming completely hardened and sociopathic, and I think that's sort of the culture that uh, creates those kind of figures. You know, when you have this very regimented society, you you either end up with people that are like mentally unwell, or that just harden themselves so much they just become kind of you know not good
0: people. Yeah, but a regimented society is inherently an exclusionary society.
2: Absolutely. And that's sort of, I don't want to get too into the weeds about this sort of thing, but, um, I mean, it is a sort of type of social Darwinism, uh, and something that, mm. uh, you know, capital requires something that empire specifically in the context of Japan in this case requires, you know, because at this point, uh, Japan before the end of world war II is still an imperial power. Um, there's, a uh, the, the sort of patriarchal figure is very, very much at the center of things because at this point, you know, the emperor is not only the head of state, but a spiritual figure, if only in a sort of pageant and ritual. Um, a lot of people mm. like to say, you know, the Japanese literally believe that Hirohito was the incarnation of, of God um, or something along those lines would really like it. that's mostly a sort of pageant, but still something that's so necessary to the structure. And one of the things I will say again, I want to reiterate this is not unique to Japan. I'm not engaging in an orientalism. This was the same type of mindset that led to fascism in Italy. Mussolini is a father figure, I'll do say it's definitely something that seems to be at the center of nearly all patriarchal society. And um, it's difficult to make heads or tails of these sorts of things because so much of the world has changed over the course of the last 50-some-odd years with regards to our relationship and our skepticism to those ways of living, those types of ideologies. And um, you, you get the impression that Mishima is such um, a conflicted figure because he also has a bit of that ingrained skepticism in his himself. Um, so many of those characters not only are beneficiaries, but also people who succumb to these types of systems and and ideals. Can I ask really quickly, you know,
1: since obviously he's returned back to his parents, his father seems like a bit of a bastard, but also cut from the mold that we're describing of that more traditional kind of macho Japanese, you know, mindset of like what, what men should be. Why did he let his son go live with his grandmother in the first place? If he felt so strongly about this and possibly was he not wise to how she was going to raise him? Was there a need that arose where they couldn't take care of him? Uh, just, or, or is there also just sort of a deference to, you know, parents where she stepped in and said, I want this to happen and you're going to do it because I'm your mother or I'm, you know, your elder.
2: It, it seems to be exactly that she just sort of put her foot down and was like, this boy will not climb to the second floor landing. He will instead live in my drawing room where he will be safe and kept. Um, that seems to be the the sort of context of the thing. Yeah. Got it. And we, we an, had have- An interesting inversion of those dynamics. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And then again, that's part of the, uh, uh, the regimented society, right? There is respect for the elders. So ultimately- they can have a sort of uh, veto power, the, similar to the way uh, the guy who blows leaves outside of uh, my outside of my window every Monday morning can make himself known. In this, I I got to tell you, i have never recorded He on defers Monday to no one. Again.
1: Th- 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 there's no yeah. one that has veto power. Yeah, a leaf blower. But
0: this, but so I want to acknowledge that, folks. Uh, but there's something that I think is uh, really interesting, not just about this part of his life. This is a bit of a segue. Uh, We, as students or as readers, have a unique insight into Mishima's life because he tells his own story in an incredibly interesting way. Decades before people start uh, making thinly-veiled autobiography a genre in film, Mishima has his breakout work in the literary scene, right? It's Confessions of a Mask and if you go to the bookstore, it's in the novel section. But it's uh, you know, it's a novel that draws like the very least you can say is it draws a great deal on his personal history, his story, and so people are again, they are taken to these really interesting emotional explorations that you mentioned at the top of the show, Zach, but these explorations are taking you into the mind of the author. And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
0: So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? people can see how closely this cleaves to the true story.
2: So, obviously, as you've already pointed out, it's a sort of kind of autobiography, what we would now call autofiction, this kind of thinly veiled uh, fictionalized version of, of events or, um, I guess, um, his own personality. Is, is there like something else that uh, you could compare that to maybe that others in the audience might be familiar with? I mean, I think that Proust is kind of known for having done these sorts of things very early on uh, in the remembrance of times past. or I can't remember the full title, but um, you could make maybe sim- way, that sort of thing.
0: Similar argument with some early Joyce, maybe like Stephen Hero, which becomes Confessions of
2: the Artist um, as a young man. Got it. No, and I, and I think this is a, this is something that has increasingly become very, very uh, popular as a sort of literary genre. Books by Ben Lerner and uh, Teju Cole, and things like that, are very closely associated with this autofiction movement, where, generally speaking, the narrator is a stand-in for the author, and in some cases shares the author's name outright, despite the fact that some of the things have been sort of twisted to be made a bit more fictional. So Confessions of a Mask is, I think— indicative of a broader tendency within literary production uh, that that's been with us since the beginning of letters right mm. Just this the fact that the artist can and should not separate themselves from their own experiences and in fact their own experiences can be this sort of stuff of art and a sort of necessary means of understanding not only the world but themselves and hopefully you know through the audience right building that sense of empathy and intimacy with them, forcing them into a place where they begin to understand things. And I think this is where like Mishima as a literary figure is most kind of powerful. This person who understands acutely the sense of being cleaved in half identity wise, Uh, this person who on the one hand has this kind of secret inner life and these obligations to be ambitious, to, to sort of be the figure of masculinity, to um, submit to military service if necessary. All of these things that are just sort of warring inside of him because not only of his upbringing, but also because of, you know, the fact that he's, he's building tastes, he's building this this reality for himself that's so at odds with what's actually going on in the world around him. Like when we said cloistered earlier, not only by class, but also by the the physical space of the room. Japan at this time during his childhood, people talk about, you know, the wartime period specifically most of the time, but much of the early 20th century is a period of imperial expansion, wars elsewhere, um, violent protest and political turmoil at home. I mean, the elements within the government staging their own coup d'etats It's an incredibly fraught time to be alive even before the war happens. And... um, that retreat to that room, trying to find oneself in that space. Life is theater. All of those things seems to be at first something that really gives him a sense of confidence in himself, but then, of course, ultimately morphs into something that is again a bit more corrosive, a bit more psychologically damaging. Mm.
0: Yeah, he uh, there's there's something that I think is key to this autofiction approach in his in his breakthrough novel which is it gives you a bit of a fig leaf. It gives you a bit of a defense or a buffer, maybe we could say, uh, some kind of a a safety switch one can pull if something about your life appears controversial against the norm or to deviate from these, uh, again, pretty concrete visions of what a proper society should be what we're talking about specifically here is that confessions of a mask goes through childhood up to the adolescence of the protagonist and then reveals uh, his awakening. Like this is all about arriving at one's identity as a young adult, ultimately. And in this, in this spirit, in this evolution, uh, one of the, I hesitate to call it climactic moments but there's this realization that this protagonist is attracted to people of the same sex that's how you would have put it at this time and this is obviously a controversial identity right in in this immediately post-war Japan uh, because there's still a lot of traditions that have been carried over, even if those are being intensely interrogated at this time due to the horrors of World War II. But now I I wonder, Zach, how society received this novel because it was, it was quite successful, but was there any calculus on Mishima's part to have that, that safety net where one could say, well, this is just a novel?
2: Honestly, I think it's a bit the opposite Mm. He sort of leaned into it pretty much immediately, mm-hmm. um, and sort of one of the things that it you know attracts you to iconoclastic personalities in the first place is their willingness to kind of swim against the current to sort of be the person to put their foot down and say no, actually this is who I am. However mediated his own image is, um, he very much kind of leaned into his status as a kind of enfant terrible, like a sort of like almost like a Rambo figure, this person of ambiguous sexuality and, but also this kind of like later on this adventurous personality right like rambo went overseas and 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 had all of these adventures after he quit writing i call them adventures they're not great things look it up it's not the best but um <laughs> you know he he very much as tailored as the image is right it wasn't tailored in service of kind of tamping him down or making him more palatable to the public in fact it was something different like I said, he kind of, he he fashioned himself as this like effete dandy, this cosmopolitan figure, this kind of sexually ambiguous person. And that's definitely something that I think is appealing to a lot of people because so much of our own identities are unclear to us. To see somebody lean into those ambiguities with such not only, say, confidence, but also like contempt for what others thought of it mm-hmm. um, is very interesting. And it's It's doubly interesting because of how sensitive he's portrayed in the film with regards to these sorts of things. Like the sort of public life aspect of it is one thing, but um, he was very, very aware of what it was that he was feeling, very, very aware of sort of his place within that milieu as well, which I find incredibly interesting.
0: And he definitely wanted to be famous. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And, and to, to to
1: to that end he reminds me of like, you know, an Andy Warhol type to a degree. I mean, Andy Warhol was sort of cr- curated this image of himself as this sort of like uh this uh similarly kind of dandy, a fet, well-dressed, you know, kind of cosmopolitan weirdo uh who very much wanted to be famous. He also reminds me a bit of Truman Capote mm. um uh, to a degree, and I think they actually crossed paths. To uh, At some point, like in 1957, when Mishima came to the United States and apparently, you know, was not given the royal treatment, let's just say, by Truman Capote, or at least he claimed. So I believe in exchange for a time where Capote came to Japan, maybe, and then Mishima kind of gave him tours around and all of that. And he felt like he didn't get the same treatment in return.
2: Truman Capote, um, historically great friend. A great person to, to, no, to sort of have happy in your yet. circle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Truman, yeah, uh, beautiful, sorry, Truman, sorry. Truman Capote, <laughs> uh, famous for uh,
0: he wrote a couple books, and he also never forgave other people for existing.
2: It was just too egregious to him. Murder by Death is a good film. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, th- th- and that's the thing too is thankfully we've gotten away from this sort of personality in the arts, like romanticizing the person for whom. um Everything Belusiness. is in spite. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly.
2: Uh, thankfully, art seems to be trending towards a more empathetic, intimate direction. Some people decry that sort of thing, but I, I think it's ultimately good to have these writers taken down a peg, you know?
0: There's also, there's something really uh, fascinating here. When we look at the fame, uh, the the chase for fame and being image conscious to the level, uh, to like Mishima level, uh, he is... He is becoming a study in contradiction, right? To the outside observer, without knowing the inner workings of the fellow's mind, ourselves, we can say that he he was he was doing a lot. I'm not going to say too much, but he's doing a lot. Uh, a Renaissance writer, you know, uh, a literary icon by the 1960s, and this is when he starts. Uh, this is when he starts getting a more, a little bit more macho man, right? Uh, he starts working out to earn that photograph on the cover of this uh, of the translation Zach showed us, uh, and he continues uh, saying, "Look, yes, I'm getting in shape. I am getting swole. I work out three times a week. I'm also not going to hide my sexual orientation." So for a lot of the more traditional observers in Japanese society, this guy is just not computing, right? Like, why are you so manly? Why are you getting so buff when you're not obeying
2: what we see as proper uh, social roles? There's that. And I think there's also this tendency to sort of lean into one of the things that uh, especially the right wing that he became associated with later on down the line were critical of him for was like this sort of fostering of a cult of personality, this um this kind of emphasis on image and this emphasis on kind of propping himself up as a figurehead of something. Um, and mind you that Japan has a very sort of individualist kind of character as many sort of, you know, we'll say uh, as many capitalist countries do. But people were very skeptical, not not necessarily just because of that uh, sexual ambiguity, but also he was a tryhard. He was always somebody (laughs) who was putting himself out there. He was always sort of flying in the face of convention and and, and sort of like receive modes of like, or understandings of like humility, right? Like it's not enough that we read you. We have to see you in movies. We have to listen to your music. Could you maybe take it down a notch?
1: He's like you the know, kind of guy who would like have like a written by, produced by, composed by, based on theme tune, originally whistled by. He's you a know, Garth Marenghi,
2: like, yeah. You know, 100%. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but One actually a really cats. good writer.
1: No, th- th- and that's, the, that, that's what makes you begrudge him even further, right? Are you bad-mouthing Garth Marenghi?
2: I will say that admitting that you've written more books than you've read is a bad look.
0: Well, yes, but, but it's, I think it's that- masterful comedy. Oh, it's great. No,
1: that 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 guy really is the satirical kind of uh, apex of what we're describing here. And and to your point, Zach, that Mishima actually was good at all of these things. That's something that'll also piss people off. You know what I mean? We can almost stomach uh, a try hard hack better than we can someone that is really good and makes it points out kind of how mediocre a lot of other, you know, like kind of multidisciplinary artists are.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I just imagine, you know. Nominated for the, no, or like sort of considered for the Nobel Prize mm. throughout the 60s. Incredibly like matinee idol, attractive, uh, sort of very focused on physical fitness. And then increasingly politically involved in a way because of his visibility and his sort of like just individual charisma and magnetism. Obviously, that's going to rub a lot of the old guard the wrong way.
0: Uh, yeah. And additionally, Though we we do see some glimpses of, I would say, a painful inner life because around this time when he's uh, you know, when he's doing too much, as some people would say, when he's being a bit of a pick me in the world, uh, he also begins creating these images that can seem to contain suicidal ideation. And it's easy to dismiss those in the beginning as simply being edgy, committing seppuku, uh, images of like, oh, I'm drowning and stuff. These are coming out around, like coming out in the same era as real thirst trap pictures that you would call them these days where he's in a Speedo and some motorcycle gear, but he's dangerous. Uh, this, this is something we've been teasing for a little bit now. His growing political ideations, his growing fascination with the past of Japan and his own burgeoning concepts about nationalism. And say what you want about Mishima. Obviously, we think he's a fantastic writer. uh, But say what you want about his personality. You can never say that he did half measures. This guy was all gas, no brakes, whenever he was interested in something. So it's not as if he just gave one interview and said... I'm kind of embracing nationalism. Uh, How far did he go, Zach? Is that for part two?
2: I think that's probably good for part two. But one of the things I will also say about the sort of political awakening as sort of contrasted by the rest of his life, you forgot to mention that he was a model and things like that. We can't necessarily speculate too much about where he was going with regards to sort of where he ended up at the time. So to to put more frankly in confessions of a mask there's a scene where he describes this sort of homosexual awakening as a sort of encounter with a painting of saint sebastian sort of strung up to a tree littered with arrows uh that 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 painting would be reproduced several times in photographic form with Mishima as the subject and this sort of drive towards like destruction self-destruction um all of those things sort of becomes very obvious in the sort of uh, the suicidal character of many of these photographs. so much so that the turn that happens next uh, and those photographs are roughly contemporary with what the end of his life um, but um even before then, this kind of fashioning himself as like this sort of um this bright star that's burning out quickly, this kind of doomed um, figure begins in the 60s and then ultimately comes to its uh, its ultimate bloody outcome. And uh, there's a lot to be said about that, a lot of speculation as to why the political turn happens and its relationship to ultimately what does transpire in 1970, which I think is a good place to sort of pick up with uh, episode two.
0: Agreed, agreed. Uh, So we are going to come to our uh, our own brief conclusion, thankfully not a bloody conclusion, this is the end of part one of Yukio Mishima, uh, the bizarre final years. And Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show. I was uh, I was super gassed about this. Uh, Noel, I believe you were as well because we really like we've been teasing this for months, man. I think I, I hope Noel that the our fellow ridiculous historians uh, didn't suspect we were only blowing smoke.
1: Yeah, he goes to another school. Right. Uh, yeah, our, our 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 new research associate Zach is from Canada. He doesn't come around. No, he's real. Uh, he is you. Thank you, Zach. Also, just thank you. And I think our listeners thank you for some of the amazing topics you found. Really has kind of turned a corner, uh, a little bit of a of a, of a refresh of, of uh, the show. And and our uh, we've been really super excited to do some of these, and this one is no exception. So,
2: um, look forward to having you back on part two. Absolutely. Thank you all for having me. I look forward to the conversation. It gets really fascinating.
0: All right. Did you hear that? We got a second date. So we're going to call it a day. Uh, thanks, as always, to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. No relation. You can verify that, right, Zach?
2: Um, no relation except in the, the great tapestry of humanity.
0: Oh About shucks.
2: I don't, I don't know. I just to believe that uh, Zach is my uh, long-lost uh, little brother. Aw. Uh.
0: I love it. So we can we can act accordingly.
1: We can yeah. act accordingly. It's yeah. fine. We we we
3: can we, we can, we can, we can uh,
1: chosen family. That's what I like to call it. We are we the go.
0: stories we tell ourselves. We are the stories we tell ourselves.
1: But then we also do have obligatory family like uh, Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Uh, huge thanks to Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Uh, Eve's Jeff Coates uh, here in spirit as well, and
0: um, who else? Jonathan Strickland. Big thanks to Jonathan Strickland, aka the Quister. Uh, we're not going to say his name anymore because it seems to have he, he seems to obey Beetlejuice rules on the show and Candyman we, Man rules. Right. Beetlejuice rules. Yeah, well, we wanted to save you uh, as you know this is your first time as a guest, Zach. But we do we know you'll return for part two. Uh, we can't wait to explore more in the future. In the meantime, uh, folks, while you're waiting, check out check out the work of Mishima. Check out some of those pictures, Let us know what you think on our Facebook page. Ridiculous historians.
1: Yeah, Getty Images is a pretty spectacular collection that you can browse. Uh, t- and then you can also get Sticker Shock when you see they want $500 for the full resolution one uh, to <laughs> printing or publication. But you can look through. There's some incredible uh, images of these kind of jacked, you know, uh, martyred kind of, you know, uh, tableaus that Mishima was, uh, was very fond of. Uh, and it'll be a
0: really good primer and setup uh, for part two. You might even see some pictures of uh, a militia spoilers. We'll see you next time, folks.
1: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History
0: is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am and uh, aren't we all? We are.
1: While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that
0: is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, of rolling vineyards and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.